This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Williams, and this is the final episode of 2022. We've had an awesome year on the show. Thank you so much to everybody that's listened um, I shared last week that we had a lot of downloads, and as of this week, we are going to be over 250,000 downloads for the year, which is phenomenal. So thank you all so much for listening. That is um, a large part because of our new audience on Carbon TV on the website, which is phenomenal. So thank you all who have found us within the last couple of months. Um, I think this is great. I'm so excited to see what we accomplish next year. All the awesome guests that I have lined up um, and just all the cool content and even farm tours that we're going to do in 2023, which we're going to go and tour um, an oyster farm. Uh, you might remember Oyster Mom a couple of months ago from our interview. She's over, over in Apalachicola and a bunch of other stuff coming in the new year. But as for today, the last episode of 2023, we actually are having a repeat guest on the show. You might remember if you are, I guess, an old school farm traveler um, uh, listener, you might remember Sean Short from Blooming Health Farms in Colorado. Basically, they help at-risk youth learn a thing or two about aquaculture and kind of all that entails, gives, gives them opportunity for hard work and stuff like that. And Sean now has an awesome new book called Thinking Outside the Soil. And basically how hydroponics can really help ranchers grow fodder for their livestock and fodder is basically another term for um, feed like various livestock feeds that you can grow for your livestock and so Sean details out in this book some great things you can do with hydroponics like growing this food conserving water and a bunch of other things that ranchers can utilize on their ranch by using this technology and so check out Sean the book all the links below in the description of, the, of this episode Obviously, if you listen to the show, you know that I love hydroponics. I love learning about it. And I think this is so cool that um, Sean has a great way that ranchers can utilize hydroponics on their farm. 
So episode 177, thank you so much for listening. Can't wait for you to listen to our episodes in 2023. And of course, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year. Thank you so much for listening. I really, really appreciate you um, listening to all these episodes for the past year and even the past two or three years. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. We're going to enjoy kind of a break for the next couple of weeks. We'll come back um, probably the second or third week in January. Check us out on Instagram and Facebook for all those details about when you can listen to the next episode. And of course, subscribe over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so you can see our new episodes when they go live. All of that will be in the link in the description of this episode if you aren't already subscribed. But of course, you can also just search Farm Traveler wherever you get your podcast app. All right. So last episode of 2022 with Sean Short. Hope you enjoy it. All right, well, Sean Short, welcome back to the show, man. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me back. It's it's great to be here. Um, it's a, seems like a lot of evolution in what you've done, so I'm really excited to see your progress so far. And yeah, honored to be here again. Well, thank you. Yeah, and likewise, I mean, I think you are the, maybe the second or third repeat guests we've had, which I mean, hopefully, fingers crossed, I haven't scared anybody away. I mean, obviously, I haven't scared you away, um, which is good. But you, you emailed me because you've got a new book out, which is awesome, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But for those of you that might not have listened to our previous episode, like two years ago, what do you do? And what exactly is Blooming Health Farms, which I know is kind of like your big thing? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Blooming Health Farms is a nonprofit farm that uses aquaponics to do mental health therapy and STEM education with uh, at-risk youth. And then part of our mission is to provide accessible and affordable nutrition to the community and to do all of this profitably and environmentally um, conscious. So uh, with that, what we've been um, up to lately is uh, just slowly learning what the business looks like in our area as far as um, what it means to actually help uh, the youth individuals in our area. So just a quick, maybe quick backstory for some um, previous or newer listeners. Uh, I live in Greeley, Colorado. Northern Colorado um, is a prolific agricultural community, but one of the challenges that we have here is one in five people don't have enough food to eat. And Mm -hmm. we're seeing that that creates a lot of difficulties for the populations. And when we're speaking of the population that we're targeting, our audience, the uh, at-risk youth, those hunger challenges are causing them to make risky decisions, make poor choices, and some of those poor choices are causing them to get in trouble with the law and or you know with school and or parents. So we're trying to capture those individuals before they get too far down those paths and uh, put them inside of our um, little model farm that we have here and potentially teach them how to grow the fish and the food that we need to eat so they can learn the basic job skills. Um, And alongside that, we're providing some mentoring, which uh, comes sometimes from a mental health therapist perspective, sometimes comes from my perspective as a biologist and engineer. So we have a pretty neat crossbreeding of things. And um, right now we're still uh, building up the program. Our facility is a little small for um, where we are hoping to go, 
But over the past two years, what we've really learned is how to serve our population and develop a program that actually starts to give these kids some results. So, you know, we've worked with um, a dozen actual participants and about a dozen uh, members in the community have been able to fulfill their uh, useful public service. Over um, this past year, I don't have an accurate number off the top of my head for last year. Um, however, I've recently assumed the role as the executive director of Blooming Health Farms. So now I get to understand what that means um, as far as, as running a nonprofit and um, being the guy that that goes out and learns how to fundraise, learns how to write grants. So a lot of my uh, a lot of my experience in that world come from more of a research and process improvement perspective. So with that being said, I have been able to capture a couple research grants out there, and we're looking forward um, to hear back in January about a SARE grant that we're doing with some feeding trials for chicken eggs, which we can touch on a little bit when we talk about uh, my book and some of the other things that I've learned along the way. Uh, but what we're seeing is that uh, these research opportunities are offering a little bit deeper level of, you know, for lack of better words, on-job training, because we're essentially asking individuals to start doing some critical thinking and problem solving in areas where they're not used to doing that. And, and I know the benefit for myself and speaking to others when we're out there trying to solve a problem and figure something out, we learn a lot. And we learn a lot of things that we don't ever expect to learn. So we're seeing that, A, the agricultural aspect that we're introducing for the job training and the STEM education is, you know, unpacking all these different avenues for these kids. And um, then piling on the additional research component or having that, that out there allows me to kind of draw on some of those aspects as well and start asking questions that I didn't think that I had to ask and stuff like that. So it's pretty <laughs> fun. Um, I'm loving what we're doing right now. Uh, we're in a transitionary place where I'm seeing that the model we've developed is is working, and now I want to grow and expand. So um, basically, I'm I'm telling everybody I'm trying to grow my business out of where we're at now, and take that next step so we can start growing more food and growing more people. Yeah. So that, that tagline, I love growing food and growing people, because I think what you guys are doing, I mean, it's phenomenal. I mean, you're taking at, at risk youth and teaching them about agriculture, about aquaponics. And I mean, there's a lot that goes into that, especially aquaponics. Like it's such a very yeah. technologically savvy, like agriculture production. And not a lot of people realize it. They don't know really how popular it is and how intensive it is. And so it's awesome that, I mean, you're not only focusing on like helping them with their mental health, helping them kind of get out of trouble, but also teaching them like, you know, how to grow your own food, how to be self-sufficient, how to gain interest in STEM careers. So I feel like there's a lot of eggs in one basket you guys are kind of taking care of, which is awesome. I mean, that's, I'm sure it's a struggle and you probably know as you're now the creative director, like I'm sure that that's a lot of stuff you're having to juggle. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It's a lot to juggle. 
Um, my board of uh, trustees often tell me, they go, you have a kind of a complicated business model. So, <laughs> you know, it's going to take a little time for you to really develop it and tease it out to really make the significant impact that I see. We envision that this model could be implemented in other communities. There's a lot of other communities out there with similar challenges. Now, we're looking at another challenge here in Weld County, Colorado. We have a high crime rate for youth. So that's mm. one of the angles that we're seeing that this hunger issue is, is, is showing its face in our community. So we recognize that you know, these, these issues will show up in maybe different ways and or similar ways. Um, but our, our segue into working with some of these justice-involved youth are really neat um, from the aspect that we're starting to build a community, you know, that other people hadn't tried to build yet. Mm -hmm. And I think back of some of this is that I used to be one of these kids. I, I'm a recovered alcoholic and I've worn a lot of metal bracelets and have a lot of mugshots. So it's also given another little angle for relatability with these kids um, that I can get in there and show, hey, look, this is who we were and this is who we can be. And it's fantastic because both Ryan and I have had our challenges in our past and we recruit people into our world that have kind of those solid backgrounds, but that have overcame them. And um, yeah. That's awesome. I mean, I'm sure that like you're talking, that relatability is huge. I mean, I taught for two years in high school and I mean, I, I know students and like even just kids in general, they want to relate. Like they don't want somebody that's, you know, I don't know, like a fake person. They want somebody that they can relate to at like whatever stage of life they're in. And I mean, if they've got a trouble pass, they can see, wait, hold on. Like this person had a trouble pass just like me and they really turned it around. Like, Maybe I should do what they do. And I think I think that's huge. And I'm sure that's been very beneficial and very impactful for those students that you're working with. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's probably the most impactful way is it's just a very um, quick heart feel, if you will, where they get to yeah. say, oh, OK. And I think there is some of those challenges when you are in more of that professional teacher environment where you either don't get an opportunity to necessarily build those relationships or just the nature of the environment kind of puts some of those barriers up there for the individual. So for right, wrong, or indifferent, I think some of those stigmas form in the minds of the youth where they're like, oh, well, this is teacher and they're above me. And so it's hard for them to relate at some level. And then at the same time, you're kind of in this position of authority as a teacher. And so mm. you have to maintain some of that specifically, I see when you're in these facilities and in these institutions, because the structure is important to maintain the homeostasis of everything. So I luckily get the opportunity to kind of do this in that non-traditional setting and say, you know, kind of say, oh, I'm, I'm a teacher, but not a teacher. And it's really nice. I do envy those that have that professional experience like yourself that have worked in the school because you guys have built some discipline stuff that I'm now having to learn how to do uh, mm. lesson planning, curriculum planning and stuff like that. I'm like, Oh dear goodness. I need to speak out with my teachers and <laughs> ask them how they do all of this stuff. Uh, biggest challenge I found is that in that lack of experience is really um, 
aligning what my expectations are for how I was as a learner at different learning stages with where they're at. And I've now realized, you know, or starting to understand more and more, you know, where they're at and where I'm at and say, oh, hey, you know, I'm not teaching to a college class here, Sean. So let's teach to a different <laughs> class. And that was honestly my first challenge was, was forgetting that I'm not a college professor, for lack of better words, just leaning on previous experiences. So. Yeah, I love the just the struggle and the mental gymnastics that teachers have to do. I mean, there's just so much going on there. Like, well, I mean, first off, like, I love the like the mental chess game of you're trying to figure out what should I do to best impact this student and how are they going to react? And you're trying to judge that you're trying to figure that out. And the student sometimes can figure it out and sometimes they'll play hardball. But then, I mean, when you get through to them, when you connect with them, when you have that relatability, it's huge. And I mean, and you talk about discipline, like I only taught for two years. The reason I stopped teaching is because of discipline. Like they don't teach how they don't teach you how to discipline students, how to manage a classroom in college. It's just like, oh, here's how you lesson plan. But 90 percent of teaching is discipline in, in classroom management. And I mean, it's like those are the hard things to master. But it, I mean, once you master them, once you figure them out, like you're golden and you can manage pretty much any classroom, elementary school, middle school, high school, college. I mean, maybe elementary school. I don't know if you could go from managing a high school to an elementary school student because those are like two totally different, <laughs> I don't know, animals. But but yeah, that's wild. But I mean, it's a good struggle. It's a good struggle for sure. Yeah, it is. I One of my good friends is uh, teaches middle school at a military academy down in New mm. Orleans. And so she works with similar population and then has some of those unique challenges. Um, but she had to teach some young kids once. And that was one of her first drill things was like, they are wild. I cannot control them. I'm like, I don't think you're gonna. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're like the energizer bunny. They're bouncing off the walls. They come in from lunch. They're just like crazy. I mean, it's fun, but it takes a certain type of person to do that. Yeah. I visited a, a school here and they were doing indoor recess when I stopped by and I, stepped into the kindergarten area and it was just so awesome to just see how the teachers were just letting them be kids inside mm -hmm. just being wild and crazy and I'm just like man I miss those days <laughs> <laughs> I miss when I can do whatever <laughs> yeah where we could just throw around and throw ketchup on the wall and mom's like okay don't worry about it but now I gotta finally go ketchup yeah, exactly. Back then you're like, yeah, it's just ketchup. It's fine. But now you're like, well, I'm the adult. Yeah. When, when I was teaching, I would always think of this quote and it, I saw it like a meme years ago and it was like, when you're in public or when you're in school and kids are acting up and you start thinking like, where's an adult? And you're like, oh wait, I'm the adult. And so you start looking for an older adult, an adult to your adult. I'm like, that was me. I mean, I was like, okay, like where are the adults at? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, um, but it's funny. I mean, it has, oh, it yeah. has changed the views. Yeah. And so speaking of you guys, Blooming Hill Farms, um, I'm sure you've heard of Vertical Roots out of Wyoming, right? I have. Yes. So I had um, Nonya on the show months ago. And I think I think it's awesome because this trend for, I don't know, five or 10 years, I feel like you guys are taking like at risk youth, showing them opportunities in agriculture and helping them out a whole lot. And then people like Vertical Roots are taking underserved community people with learning disabilities and stuff like that and giving them awesome career opportunities through ag. And so, 
I mean, do you think that, I mean, what are some awesome benefits that can come from this? I mean, it's awesome that agriculture is kind of at the forefront of this. Like, mm-hmm. what are some other advantages that might come from like under, underserved communities, like gaining career and like success aspirations through agriculture, essentially? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, <laughs> it's a big question. Yeah, no, it is. And there's, you know, the the first thing that I really think out are the benefits that I've that I've seen with the people that I've worked with is that they learn, I guess, for lack of better words, they learn things that they didn't expect. So mm. in in developing the business, I've recognized that part of developing a, a business and I sometimes have to be clear about, you know, nonprofits are a business. And um, I recognize, you know, we have to market, we have to say who we are, what we're doing, why we're doing it. And uh, so for instance, I have a kid that came across, uh, came into our program in March. And uh, he told me he wanted to be a rap star. And I looked (laughs) at him, I was like, absolutely, no problem. Um, So one of the things that has gone on since he has told me this and, and I joked with him at first but I was serious in in the sense I said I could use someone with that skill set that could market and talk about you know who they are and what they're doing and we definitely need some type of person in here so I would love to you know explore some of those opportunities what does that mean for you um you know and fast forward a little bit he took some of his uh, money that he gets and uh, he's a he's one of our employees, and he uh, went and bought his first studio equipment. And he's now got his own YouTube channel, and we've actually made some uh, videos. I've got a background in still portrait photography, and so we picked up the video cam and started shooting music videos. And uh, so within that, that's actually allowed me to network with some new business owners that are not necessarily tied to the agricultural world, but from a larger business community are tied to other individuals. So it's almost kind of like that six degrees of of, of Kevin Bacon thing where, so we actually shot our most recent music video at a bookstore. I was in the bookstore to tell the, uh, tell the proprietor about my book. Uh, the kid was in there with me and goes, this would make a great place to shoot a video. And um, so now I've been able to put this kid in touch with the bookstore owner who actually is going to put him in a recording studio with some other individual that he knows. So I guess in one weird segue is it's allowed me to open up larger communication or networking within the community to actually Mm -hmm. explain what it is that we're trying to do. Um, And in that, it's shown me where some of the needs in our community are. So we definitely see a gap in workforce development here mm. in our area. We don't have um, a rigorous development center where if you've never had the job, you have a place to fail. And so here at Blooming Health Farms, we've been able to at least provide a lot of that, I have most of my aquaponics set up in like a decoupled redundancy so that if they mess up, I'm okay with it. If water gets spilled, I'm okay with it. If things die, except with fish and chickens, if they die, you know, we're, we're okay with that. 
um, so they can fail forward, if you will. And we're growing mostly crops that grow really quick. I do microgreens, sprouts, and green onions. They have a high turnover and they're extremely challenging to fail at. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think that that in and of itself are some of the, the benefits that I'm seeing. Um, but I know that, I mean, you touched on aquaponics being just kind of packed up with all of this other stuff, you know, high technology, um, definitely different areas of science, you know, animal agriculture, plant science, and then diving into the other areas of, you know, like the soft sciences, the customer relations, um, economics, business development, marketing, advertising, all of those little things come out of these individuals that go into an agricultural setting. So even if you're doing it on the land with very minimal resources, there's a lot packed in there because you still have to do all of the stuff to get your you know, product to market. And behind all of that, especially in today's world, is technology. You know, we're sitting here doing an interview on a fascinating piece of technology that, you know, five years ago, farmers likely couldn't have done. So being able to, you know, do stuff like this, but then even what I'm seeing is, um, and you may have seen this too when you were a teacher, is, is the, you know, the kids all have their, their, their phones, they're just like this. I... Uh, we're building an app and trying to work and develop an app that is called Aquaponics PhD. And right now I'm building out like a 12 week curriculum in conjunction with what we've learned. And the idea is like a once a week, um, you know, hands on in person with us and then be able to supplement the rest of the stuff with the app videos and assignments um, and it's, it's so far um, seeming to make some progress. I've only had a few kids that are really embracing it right now. So I'm, I'm mm. learning you know, what is the challenges on my end. But the teachers that I'm working with, uh, they love it. They love this idea that it can kind of take this piece of technology that's become a handicap for a lot of individuals and maybe start to introduce it in a different way and start to say, hey, you know, you have a calculator on your phone. You know that, right? I do. And um, <laughs> so little things like that. I know I see um, exploring that technology in a, in a different way, I think, is, is uh, another benefit that I'm seeing from agriculture because we do have to do it. You know, precision agriculture and all of that aspects are just they're taking over the world. And, you know, we can't build vertical farms inside without know-how technology and the, you know, the brick and mortar people that make it happen. So it's definitely a good marriage of everything that we need to keep our world moving forward. Yeah, hundred percent. I think the intersection of all the technology that goes into agriculture is awesome. And I mean, people think of ag as like something that's like old school, just um, old school farming, you know, but there's so much technology and there's so many like, diverse ways of farming too, like hydroponics, aquaponics that people don't really think about. And so it's awesome that, I mean, you guys have an awesome intersection of technology and helping people. Like you said, growing food and growing people, which I think is the perfect little tagline. Um, and so you mentioned earlier, we'll move and start talking about your book. You've got a new book out. What yeah. was the inspiration? What was the whole writing process like? Um, and of course, most importantly, what is it about? 
well, I have a copy <clears throat> here for you because I'm a little bit of a showman. So hey, look uh, at that. There we go. It's uh, called Thinking Outside the Soil, and it talks about how hydroponic farmer hydroponic fodder helps farmers save water, improve their livestock quality, and uh, become better stewards of our earth. So how did it just start? Well, I, I love to write. I love to read. I'm a voracious reader. Uh, I've been writing probably about since high school age at like mm -hmm. a, a interested in essays, um, longer form type writing, journaling. I've been journaling for a long time. Um, when I, uh, about six years ago, when I got back on my feet, um, I was actually sitting in a jail cell and I had a counselor say, Hey, why don't you try poetry? So I took my hand into poetry and it actually taught me some of the discipline to keep a prolific writing habit. Hmm. So back of all of that, I've had all of this stuff that I had created. And um, I was kind of sitting around one day just thinking about, you know, what I enjoy and the aspects of, of you know, myself that I'm really good at and trying to tie this is how is this relevant to the business? And I recognize that, well, if I'm a writer, this definitely means I need to lean into the grant writing aspect of, of what I'm doing here. So I started to think about those things, but another thing that popped up in my mind was, was recognizing that we're still growing as a business and I'm still, a, I'm a young individual, young entrepreneur and a young scientist. And I was trying to look for a way to stand out, to be honest, mm -hmm. to, to stand out of the crowd from everybody else. And a lot of people say, if you want to stand out, you want to be an expert, write a book. So yeah, I said, well, true. I like to write. I love to read. Let's write a book. So I opened up my file cabinet and actually you have a file cabinet of handwritten stuff. So I pulled it out and started going, what can I create? What can I just take and just you know, dump it out, you know, kind of irresponsibly when you look back at it. But I was like, ah, I just, you know, I got to do something. I, what do I know? <laughs> well, I know hydroponics. So I told myself and started kind of wrestling these couple ideas. And uh, so as I was, as I was thinking about this, lo and behold, the world somehow put this um, challenge in front of me. And I was actually on Instagram came across this individual who was uh, proposing this 30-day book challenge. And he said, uh, essentially, I've got a process that can help you get your book done from nothing to done in 30 days. And I said, okay, I don't believe you, <laughs> but let's go for it. You know, you that, that's a pretty daunting task, I imagine. Uh, so I, I jumped into the process and day one of the process showed me that my whole plan to use the file cabinet notes was, I threw that out the window. Uh, <laughs> the assignment was to sit down and write out your struggles, what struggles you had, how did you overcome them, and what lessons did you learn that allowed you to, you know, kind of get to where you are today. And so mm -hmm. as I looked through that, I looked at my struggles as being an alcoholic. I looked at how my education and my passion for helping others and farming pulled me out of that stuff. And uh, so I recognized that, you know, I've, I've enjoyed helping people and I've been helping people with agriculture. 
so I just kind of went through this guy's little little um, drill, if you will, and said, did what he said. And, and it's not even a joke. An hour after I went through that process, I got a phone call from a farmer that said, I just love what it is you're doing. Um, and I just want to, I want to just tell you that everything I'm doing and da, 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 and he's just like fired off about five minutes of stuff. And I was like holding the phone back here because it was just so loud. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then I hung up the phone and then literally like 10 minutes later, I got a phone call from another farmer, both talking about how they essentially were having challenges with water and they were going to have to call their herds. You know, the, the way that uh, I had a, the first guy was a rancher here. He's got, um, I want to say about a hundred head of pasture raised uh, cattle and he has 60 ewes and he told me, he goes, but if you talk to me next week, it might be half that. Mm. And that, you know, intrinsically in me, I understood exactly what he was saying. That hurt. That hurt a lot. I cannot um, put into words necessarily how much that just kind of stung in my stomach to hear someone just say that because it hurt him to say it too. Uh, so I think that really was the first real piece that said, okay, I am I'm doing this. And so like day two, we had to, you know, go out there and, and tell people, you know, hey, I'm going to try to do this you think this is a good idea and they they just got more feedback from some other farmers and so it was really ranchers mostly ranchers um that that said cool so i just continued on with the process to be honest with you well there you go that's awesome i mean yeah and that, that's one of those like i don't know unknown burdens of of ranching that a lot of people don't realize i mean if you haven't managed your your herd extremely well if they're like whatever happens like if there's a decrease in feed or whatever like you're gonna have to call some of them and that's just kind of the way that it is i mean we saw a lot of that during the pandemic when you couldn't process animals i mean mm -hmm. there gets to a point where you can't process them they're not going to go to market there's nothing you can do you're not gonna be able to take care of them so it's like a i don't know it's a huge burden and i mean obviously like when you hear about that you're you're heartbroken you're like well dang this sucks but so, I mean, what kind of problem does your book solve? So I wrote this book with the aspirations um, to teach every farmer that uh, they can use hydroponics to save water and grow their animals. And when I, when I started on that process, I originally thought that like some other people in the hydroponics world that, uh, this is a end all solution for everything. And mm -hmm. I quickly discovered that I was not correct. Um, it is a process, it is one solution that can be helpful for people. But mm -hmm. also what I discovered along the writing of the book um, through my research process was that there's actually a lot of ranchers and farmers growing their animal feed using hydroponic methods. And it's been going on for, I mean, I was looking back at least 15 years in the commercial areas. And I've seen research back in the 50s of them looking at doing different types of sprouted grains um, and other hydroponic type of 
products, which we didn't necessarily call them the same thing back then. Uh, so when I started to, to uncover this, the book transformed from a, you can do hydroponics and make and do all this stuff to saying, this is how hydroponics is helping farmers. This is um, how, so for instance, hydroponics uh, is shown to reduce water consumption by over 90% across the board in all mm -hmm. areas of agriculture. And when I was doing my research, I discovered that most of the farmers using hydroponic methods to grow animal feed are saving 95 and 96% of their water costs. So it falls in that 90% that range. So A, I was like, well, there's one solution that I can talk about for farmers and ranchers to say, hey, look, hydroponics is able to offer you an opportunity to offset your water costs. Now, depending on what you're doing and how you're farming, if you're doing a, you know, different types of operation, maybe it only plays in part with some of it. Um, so uh, I had previously read a paper a few years ago by um, trying to think of the researchers. I believe they're out of uh, Virginia, Virginia. Okay. And they wrote this uh, paper that basically hypothesized, what if we remove all of the animals from agriculture, what would it do to our economy? And uh, essentially, or what would it do to our agricultural system? And one of the takeaways that I got from that is that there would be this, um, that we would have to, significantly expand the amount of land to accommodate some of these crops and that we would be lacking some nutrients that we normally get from animal products. Mm -hmm. um, and so what that did is that led me to understanding, well, what does that mean for, you know, comparing animals on land with is what we need to grow. And I think I had this general viewpoint that you know, animals need a lot of land and hydroponics uses less space to grow plants. So somehow in there, there's got to be a solution. Well, thankfully, other people already asked that question as well. And there's some researchers out of Canada that studied a hydroponic system made by Hydrogreen, which I do talk about in my book. It's a company out of South Dakota. They build um, automated hydroponic systems. They're focusing right now on barley and dairy and beef cattle. Mm -hmm. um, but the researchers that studied their system essentially shown that they, they confirmed that they could use significantly less water. But what they also showed was that they were using significantly less space to grow an equal amount of forage for oh, okay. the same animals. So on a, the system they studied took up about 400 square feet. They can produce a ton of feed a day, every day on 400 square feet. Mm -hmm. So that is significantly different. You know, if you need to grow a ton of this equivalent barley, let's say, um, you know, it's about what, three quarters, almost half an acre, maybe equivalency. So, I mean, that's about a 10 to 20 time, depending on the math, 
10 to 20 yeah. time fold in difference on the land sparing potential. So the two main takeaways that I first came across to say, what can this book do for others to say, look, you can save a significant amount of the water you're using. And I think there's a lot of different ways that water savings can look for different farmers. You know, they're either using less or maybe they're not using any, or possibly they can sell some of the water that they don't need to use anymore. So I think there's some profitability aspects for farmers in that area, but they can also use less land. So that can look like, you know, a lot of different ways. Um, perhaps they're interested in expanding their herd and don't have the space to expand. Um, or maybe it's the opposite situation where they, they have something else. Um, perhaps there's an opportunity to put that land into different use. You know, out, so for instance, out here in um, Northern Colorado, we have um, a pretty prolific gas and oil, oil and gas industry. So mm -hmm. some of these farmers out here, they have a, an oil well on their property and that it can't be farmed. So in and of itself, you know, that land can be used for something else other than growing food. Um, you know, maybe you want to just put it into an agricultural trust. Maybe you want to pop up a, a second home for your, your kids. You know, um, I don't know what that may look like. I was just kind of <laughs> dreaming there. I, I don't foresee that last one. But uh, so then as I started to say, okay, well, less water, using less land, the third big thing that I learned was that there's inherently uh, hydroponic fodder is inherently healthier, for lack of better words, compared to field grown forage. Mm, and okay. so healthier is kind of a it's, it's a hard word to really use because it's not necessarily black and white. So I think it'd be helpful to qualify that with what I mean. So in general, sprouts or a, a seed, the seed itself has, for lack of better words, all the potential in it to create life. Mm -hmm. And during the germination process, that seed is um, you know, producing all of the amino acids that it needs to create the proteins, to create all of that stuff. So at the very initial level, this sprouted grain and, my, and at a microgreen stage, they are a complete protein compared to, so if you had a field-grown barley forage or a hydroponic barley sprout, that hydroponic barley sprout is a higher protein than the, the field grain, if you were to have that field mm -hmm. grain. And we use barley grain in a lot of different feedstock, so it's important to bring that up. Um, I think 70% of feeds you know, 70% of barley even goes to the feedstocks. So it's, it's definitely um, something that we're seeing. And uh, <clears throat> then depending on the different crops during that initial germination process, they're also seeing that there's some higher fatty acid profiles, like for instance, um, sunflower has a higher uh, omega profile in the first four days of itself. And then not until it goes back to the seed stage do you get those fatty acid benefits again. So sunflower being a commonly used forage and silage crop for a lot of farmers, um, the waste product from sunflower is, is used significantly in the feed industry. 
So there are definitely um, some advantages to using that. So when you're feeding healthier feed to your animals, you're getting a better product, for lack of better words. So I primarily discovered this uh, because I have chickens and I, I sell a packaged sprout product to for consumers, for human consumption. Mm -hmm. We mess up when we produce things. Sometimes things go bad. So I had some spent sprouts that I threw out to my chickens. They ate it up and I didn't think anything of it because that's what chickens do. However, my, my patrons started saying, man, these are some of the best eggs I've ever had. It, <laughs> I, the shells, like I have to crack them twice. You know, the, like the, the egg whites are almost have this golden hue to them. And, you know, like the, I have to hit the yolk a couple times to crack it too. And I'm just like, okay, yeah, whatever. Well, I started to pay attention to some of these, these comments and I was like, probably just people that don't eat eggs. Don't worry about it, Sean. Yeah. <laughs> then I did some accounting and looked at my bank, um, how much I was spending on feed. And I was spending half of my expected costs on chicken feed. Then my brain kind of just went, oof. And uh, so as I was writing the book, uh, that was really the my true understanding of how to come into this process. And so I have... Uh, written it in that perspective of, of telling you a lot of how I discovered this process, why it's useful. And then I go into um, a little bit of the background of how hydroponics has you know, been around and then talk about some of the different animals. Uh, I focus on, you know, the most common animals that we have um, that we use in agriculture. So I focus on the top, six animals by uh, by population that we raise in the wild. So um, those are going to be your chickens, your cows, your pigs, ducks, um, goat, and sheep. That's awesome. Yeah. And I mean, going back to the sprouts thing, like I've heard, um, I've seen like numerous reels and everything on, you know, everywhere talking about how like bro a broccoli sprout, for example, will have infinitely more nutrients than like an actual stem of broccoli. And it's cool that this like whole trend of sprouts is now making its way to livestock and livestock management, where if you give them sprouts instead of like grain that takes a longer time to grow, more processing, more room to grow it, it's not going to be nearly as calorie dense as the sprouts, which is awesome. And I mean, clearly your chickens like it. I've seen a bunch of videos of um, some far farmers that are giving it to their cows and the cows love it. It's something different. They love it. So that's awesome. But it's just so different and it helps farmers save input, save money, save water. I mean, honestly, it seems like a win-win. And before I forget about it, I wanted to ask like for these farmers that you're suggesting, like they should grow um, stuff like this, like they should grow some fodder hydroponically. What's the structure going to look like? Like, are they growing it in a greenhouse? What kind of system does that look like for them to grow it hydroponically? Yeah. So hydroponic, production of animal feed, I think can look a lot of different ways, depending on a, you know, what type of, of operation you have, mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously the, the type of livestock. Uh, and so some of those things I think, and then the scale of, of the size of what you're going to be at. So for instance, um, someone with a few chickens, backyard coop type of person, 
they can, you know, there's a lot of different products out there. A lot of, uh, you know, seed suppliers actually sell a little packaged sprouted grain with instructions. It's something that we do as well, where you've got a little instructions. Hey, you know, take a mason jar, do it at your kitchen sink while you're drinking your coffee. Uh, that's actually kind of how I got into it. We started with a few chickens. <laughs> and um, so something on that small scale is just real, real simple and practical. Um, that's a sprout. Now we mentioned microgreens. So my, a lot of people do microgreens in those black 10 by 20 trays. Mm. They're 10 inch by 20 inch. And uh, they just put the seed in there and then, and then germinate it. And then about one to three weeks, depending on the crop, you've got your little microgreen and you can cut it. So starting from that perspective, we can think about like, those are generally the two ways to do it. So then we'll talk about maybe scale a little bit. Uh, so sprouts are uh, a unique thing where you can do sprouts in pretty much any location that mm -hmm. you have water um, and elbow room to move things around. So I sprout all of our stuff in varying size of buckets and then barrels mm. right now. Now at a larger commercial scale, they actually use a spinner where they'll take a, you know, like a barrel and put it on its side and then they spin it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so in larger commercial sprout operations for human consumption, they actually have these large spinners that look like that, that uh, machine from RoboCop, you know, that big thing with the two arms. And uh, so those, so that's basically spinning, they occupy maybe a five by five by 10 area. Mm -hmm. So, and they, and they don't need any supplemental lighting or anything like that, or um, natural lighting like that. So, when we're thinking about sprouts, it can be done pr probably pretty much anywhere. Microgreens is a little bit different. Um, scale is also going to be one of your biggest factors. Um, and as far as approaching the, I guess, the process from growing plants from like a horticultural perspective, you're culturing plants a little bit more you're you know um, microgreens tend to need nutrients they tend mm -hmm. to need light so you're going to need to have some type of environment that can accommodate or go towards those things now as someone who's done both indoor outdoor uh growing um you can do all of that inside in a space that's appropriate for your scale there's a lot of uh, different companies out there that make microgreen systems and they, the list is exhaustive. Mm. Um, I will touch on the couple that make do uh, systems for farmers for growing fodder. So FarmTech, HydroGreen, and FodderTech are three companies that do different uh, scales and different levels of usability, I think. So it would look like a, I do everything, the system and I do the work, or the system does all the work, if that makes right, sense. Right, okay. Mm -hmm. Farm Tech offers uh, a vertical microgreen system that's pretty much, you know, you got to do it all yourself. It's, it's automated. It's got lighting and, and pumps. 
that you can automate, but most of the harvesting and the plant, all of the harvesting and planting process, you've got to do all mm -hmm. on yourself. Fodder Tech is a company that makes the, probably what I would say is the next iteration where you do some of that work, but they have levels of automation that will do pretty much everything but the, the harvest aspect of what you need to do. And then Hydrogreen offers pretty much plug and play, push of a button. Um, it'll do almost all the work besides the actual distribution of the fodder when you got to go out and give it to the, to the critters. Um, so with those different systems, depending on the scale, um, you're going to need a different size building and or a greenhouse. So I guess to answer your original question, yes, greenhouse for and or indoor farming. Hydro Green is putting most of their systems in basically big warehouses mm -hmm. and all of their systems have integrated lighting and everything like that. Um, some of the farmers that I've worked with so far, they do have uh, a couple of the systems we're helping them with in, um, in a greenhouse. So they're not too concerned with some of those other aspects. Um, I've yet to see personally any farmers in this area doing it outside. Now, mm -hmm. I think that is simply because of the environment. So I would say that in an, in an area, um, you know, in the subtropical area, like where you're at in Florida, you could definitely do these things outside. I think the advantage or the experience of doing it indoors in a greenhouse um, leans on that controlled agriculture setting and stuff. So you know, again, just being mindful of all the challenges of growing outdoor and then growing outdoors hydroponically where you have this basically come eat me if you're a pest. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, it yeah, seems like if just, you grow inside, you're going to have like more, um, you'll be able to control the environment a lot more. You can, you can eliminate pests. You can eliminate the weather issue. You can grow year round. And I mean, it's awesome that also there are these companies, fodder tech and farm tech and hydro tech or hydrogreen where it's already available. And so farmers, it's not like if you're a farmer and you wanted to grow hydroponic fodder, it's not like you had to start from scratch. You can contact these companies and you can buy like varying degrees of equipment that would help you yeah. produce it. So that's awesome. It's it, instead of just like, you know, starting from scratch. So this, this seems like a very, a, a very reasonable and a very kind of an easy option for farmers to do. It is. And, and so I think sometimes some of the challenges with farmers you know, I my I just made a new chicken feeder out of a bucket this morning because I didn't <laughs> have a chance to go to the store and buy one. So there's that proclivity for us to like do it ourselves because we can. We know mm. how. We have the tools. We can be resourceful and go do this stuff. But I also have to put out there that as businessmen or women, we have to be hyper mindful of our opportunity costs and what is our value in that mm. time of making a new chicken feeder and or making your own fodder system. And a lot of uh, the, the farmers that first approached me were those people that were interested in doing it themselves, got on YouTube, got online, said, hey, I can do all of this myself, ordered all of the parts. And they, you know, if you were to compare sticker prices and what they put out of pocket with just from a the money, they spent a lot less doing it themselves 
However, they spent hours and hours and hours educating themselves and then hours looking for the information and then sifting mm-hmm. through all of the information and then building it, not knowing how to do it, and then end up calling like an individual like me and saying, hey, can you help me? They're also calling those other companies too. Hey, you know, da 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 da, um, and asking some of those questions to maybe pick at some of those answers. So, in some of what I'm starting to uncover and advocate for, are are, you know, that's why I kind of put out those three little levels of of the stuff out there, because at, at some operation, you know, how many farmers are going to go build their own tractor, or do they call John Deere? Yeah, exactly. So, not many. Not many are going to build their own tractor unless it's you know they're repairing it from scratch, basically. Yeah, exactly. So I think some of the same concepts have to apply when we're thinking about a production operation, and we're trying to create you know a stable stable stream of revenue. And typically, the people that know how to do all the really great stuff are the most valuable employees. You know, they're the managers, mm-hmm. they're the owners. So tasking us to do that type of stuff it's great it's novel it it works really well and i save a few bucks today um but what but what i've i've been learning is that yeah you know it's it's the same as that analogy i had a a salesman actually say that to me one time he goes would you build your own tractor if you were going to go plant corn and i said no, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely not. That is going to be wildly not. out I'll of the spend picture. Years learning how to be a mechanic. <laughs> oh yeah, before I even know how to be a welder. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You got to learn all the trades. You can build a tractor. You got. I mean, now you've got to learn computer programming and electrical engineering, just everything to just build it. So, yeah. I mean, that that's a very good point. The opportunity cost there, like you've got to just figure it out. Either figure it out or pay somebody else to do it. I mean, which is always a very, very good option. So if people want the book, the book is on Amazon. Is that right? Yes, it is on Amazon and it's available in paperback and Kindle. It's uh, also it should be on the, the bookshelf you know, at a bookstore near you. Um, if it's not, I encourage uh, anyone to ask, you know, ask the, the guy at the counter, the lady at the counter, hey, I'm looking for... For this book um how come you don't have it on your shelf get on your <laughs> distributor and order it for us so we can read it um we don't like digital copies we want the paper copy but uh yeah and um you know and i'm, and I'm also exploring what other opportunities there are to uh put books out there you know when you go to your farm supply store a lot of times there's this sitting on the shelf yeah. So I do have uh, a couple local places here where that happens to be sitting on their shelf so they can show um, a little bit of what we're doing. And the idea is, is, you know, information is power. You know, we, the more information that we have as individuals, we can make a better informed decision. Mm-hmm. And the idea with the book is to be able to help farmers make an informed decision and they usually do that by listening to other farmers and what other farmers have done. They don't listen to um, even uh, someone sitting at the other side of a zoom call that says, I know what I'm talking about that, you know, they're going to go down to the coffee shop and listen to their guys that they've talked to. all the time. So those are the places where 
where uh, that book's got to be. It's where those mm-hmm. conversations happen. And um, I'm seeing that it's, it's, it's coming. It's, it's a good conversation that we need to be having. Yeah, that's awesome. And I mean, yeah, farming is such a cool, it's such a cool collaborative environment. I mean, farmers sharing what, what works for them. I mean, not only just across communities, but also across the country, across states, across the world. I mean, I, I think that's really cool. And I mean, I think this book would be a perfect thing to be at like a tractor supply or like a feed store or something. So hopefully it gets to be on more shelves there. I think that'd be awesome. I'm going to have to go down to uh, my local bookstore here in Panama City and see if it's there. If not, I'm going to have to order it, tell them, hey, please get this book. We, we've got some local ranchers here in Bay County, Florida that would definitely benefit from this. Um, so yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I'll be I'll be checking out the bookstores for it. But Sean, congrats on the book. Hope I, I, I'm assuming this is not going to be your last book. I'm sure you will write many more books on various topics. I, I intend to, um, you know, this one, I've, uh, you know, it's uh, going to open up a lot of conversations, I think, that are going mm. to tell me what it is I should be talking about. Uh, one of the biggest things that we've, I think, that we get to learn as educators is that we don't know what we don't know, and everybody knows something you don't, and uh, they're going to show hey, this is where we're going to need to lean into. And it, and it showed me that right now, most of the focus with hydroponic fodder and most of the support is with our, our bovine friends here. They, you know, they, they, they rule Colorado. They rule most of the United States. Yeah. And uh, for, for good reason, you know, they're an integral part of our ecosystem. And uh Part of our economy too, I, you know, animal agriculture is a significant part of our economy. I, oh, hundred percent. Colorado, Florida, United States, yeah, absolutely. It's a huge part of the yeah. economy. Yeah, absolutely. So right now, those uh, farmers out there that are doing um, beef cattle or dairy cattle, they mm-hmm. are seeing some phenomenal results by feeding fodder. Not just the the benefits of saving water, using less land, but the, you know they're getting better marbling in their meat. They're finishing faster. Um, you know, they're having less gut problems because they're not finishing them on corn. They're, um, you know, then the offal product is significantly improved. So you mm. have a healthier animal, but then you also have healthier organs. You have healthier skin. You have healthier bones. I mean, you have, I guess those are all organs. However, <laughs> that's an important aspect that I think from a consumer perspective, we don't think about. But the rancher knows specifically like how much that liver is going to get for him at the market. And, uh, you know, those are things I think a lot of times that we don't necessarily talk about. Um, something that you mentioned and you may have seen when you saw it on the, on the reels or in any other videos is these animals, they pretty much abandon their regular feed for this hydroponic fodder. Mm-hmm. And uh, that says a lot. Animals are extremely intelligent they know what's best for them. And so when this happens over and over and over again, and I thought it was a fluke, but every single, I do fodder every other day with my chickens. And so every other day when I I have a volunteer that does most of that, and they're just like, dude, they abandon it. No matter what I do out there, they abandon that feeder. And it's just like a pack of, you know, velociraptors. Uh, (laughs) They're like, Hey, it's fodder day. Time to get our good food. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's great. And, I have this great picture that I put in the in this book where there's beef cattle eating out of a trough where the, the ranchers put their fodder. 
and you can just see all these other cows that are slightly fenced out. And, you know, in my mind, I, I personify it, but I, I'm like, hey, what you got over there? You got dessert or how come I don't get any of that good stuff? You know, like this is the, the five course meal type stuff for some of these animals. Um, but then dairy farmers are also seeing that they've got a little, they got a little bit better milk fat, mm. um, which is, a, you know, that in and of itself right there is an improvement to their bottom line. So having a better animal. Um, so you're seeing on, on kind of both sides. So it just kind of does kind of this, your savings are improved and your bet, your profits are strengthened. Um, mm-hmm. and, and to me, that's just kind of like the, you know, a no brainer to, to farmers. So I think that steps back to that conversation is it's definitely sparked by farmers. It's got to continue with farmers and it's got to stay in those, those areas because it's, it's them who are going to choose what's right. And I have this core belief that it's, it's the people who make our food that are the the, the true environmentalists, the true stewards, the true protectors of our everything, because they, mm-hmm. they have to be, we have to be, and we don't even, sometimes we don't even get the choice, you know, it, it can be an economic decision that forces us to do the better thing. But to me, this is just kind of a no brainer. It does both of those things. Everything's better and things are less expensive. So I think it's, it's a win-win in the world out there for what we're doing. I hope that we see it expand into some of the other areas of agriculture as we prove out that the cattle is just amazing. And I know some of the loudest mouths in politics are involved with cattle as well. So I think it's gonna come out come out really well. And as I mentioned earlier, I pursued a grant with um, SARE, with Western SARE. So Sustainability Agriculture Research and Education Grant through USDA to study how this fodder is affecting their eggs. And we're gonna look at barley and sunflower. And my hypothesis is that the shells are gonna be thicker and that they're gonna have a high omega-3 component. So then we can market these eggs even differently as a value-added product. Um, So there's there's something else, you know, and if you've got pasture and or free-ranged with your chickens as well, at last estimate, there were 22 billion chickens on this earth, Trevor. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of chickens, yeah. A lot of chickens. And I think cows come in at about 2 billion. Okay. So we've A little got bit a below, but still of, a lot of cows. We've got a lot of cows, yeah, and they weigh a lot more. So we got more more cow than we do a chicken. Um, so, yeah, our, our bovine buddies, are they're the, the gateway, I think, to everything. And... And just in, in, you know, keeping my pulse on all of the stuff you do and stuff. And it just seems like that's a recurring theme that, mm-hmm. that we've, we've got to keep in mind that these ruminants, if you will, are integral to all of us. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you brought up a good point. Like, I mean, um, this is clearly best for the animals. The animals know it. The animals love it. They think it's delicious. I mean, there's a reason why they're going to that and not their regular feed. So I mean, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Hopefully this catches on more as people get your book more, as information like this gets out. Hopefully, I don't know, this could be the new norm in a couple of years. We can have better tasting meat, better tasting food, higher quality chickens, higher quality eggs. I think that'll be kind of cool. So it's awesome that you've kind of stumbled upon this. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I'm pretty excited. Yeah. I, I, I think it, I can hear the excitement um, in your voice. And I know um, the excitement in those animals is just night and day. <laughs> no, I can imagine. I bet it is. Well, I think your book would be the perfect stocking stuffer for any rancher out there. I will link it below in the description of this episode. Uh, but Sean, thanks so much for being on again, man. We really appreciate it. We'll have to have you on again for your next book, whenever that is. Absolutely. I would love, I would love that opportunity. Um, thanks again for, for having me on. Uh, if you know, if anybody wants to look up more about what we do with Blooming Health Farms, please go to bloominghealthfarms.com and check out what we're doing. And then we mentioned the book is available on Amazon. You can also go to thinkingoutsidethesoil.com to learn a little bit more about uh, the book. You can uh, follow the link to order yourself a copy. And there's also a few other little goodies on there um, to kind of help you digest more of how fodder could fit into your work. Well, perfect. Well, Sean, thanks so much, man. We appreciate it and have a great rest of your December to great Christmas, man. We'll talk to you soon. Yes, thank you, Trevor. Merry Christmas and Merry Christmas to all of your listeners out there. And again, thank you so much for listening to this episode with Sean. Check out all the links below in the description of this episode. And I hope you have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy Holiday. And of course, also a Happy New Year. Um, we're going to be taking a break again for the next couple of weeks. Enjoy the holidays. Be sure to follow us over on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts, of course, to stay up to date for the show. And to make that as simple as possible, all you've got to do is go in the link in the description of this episode, and you will see some links for Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all that good stuff. That'll make it super simple so you can follow us wherever is most convenient for you. So thanks so much for listening. I always appreciate it. Have a great rest of your 2022, and we'll see you in 2023. Adios. One of the most legendary shows in the outdoors is on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Primo's Truth About Hunting, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.